It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bear Boat Alaska, a pure DIY hunting game with one of their 37-foot adventure yachts. You and five of your friends can hunt, fish, set crab pots, shrimp pots, and take DIY to the next level. Bear Boat Alaska is locally owned by a Ketchikan resident who lives here year-round. Call Larry at 907-617-4542 or go to bearboatalaska.com. That's B-A-R-E boatalaska.com and tell larry you heard about it on this podcast welcome back to the podcast uh, my guest today is going to talk to us a little bit about bycatch and uh fish his uh name is jonathan warrenchuk thanks for being on here john hey thanks for having me jeff so uh if you could give me a little bit of background on what your position is what you do and then i guess maybe an initial definition of of bycatch and then we'll go from there yeah, sure. So my name is John Warrenchuk. I, uh, I'm a scientist. I have a degree in fisheries, actually, from University of Alaska Fairbanks um, from way back. Um, I work for a group called Oceana. So I'm a conservation fisheries biologist, a conservation scientist. Uh, Oceana is a nonprofit ocean conservation group. Um, we're one of the, the largest... Um, uh, ocean conservation groups. I think, in fact, we are the largest group uh, solely focused on ocean conservation. Uh, I've worked here in Alaska, lived in Alaska for over 25 years and worked for Oceana for around 18 or 19 years, I believe. And uh, yeah, my job, uh, my my title is campaign manager and ocean scientist. And what I do is um, uh, basically uh, focus on some of the industrial fisheries in Alaska and uh, try to minimize the impacts of those fisheries through um, engaging in the the management process. Mm-hmm. My family moved up in uh, 1986 and I remember my dad and I going out to fish and we had a, I don't know if, I think it was a bay liner or maybe a, a glass bee. And I remember just getting some halibut here and there, but people who knew what they were doing, they were just getting halibut nonstop and the kings and everything. So I've lived here long enough to kind of observe anecdotally um, halibut and king salmon. And those are kind of the primary fish that are that are looked at when it uh, comes to what impact the bycatch might be having. Um, so why is bycatch a concern and kind of uh, what is it? Right. So we define bycatch as the uh, unintended catch in fisheries. So it's it's catch that wasn't targeted, but ends up uh, being caught by the target fishery. And um, pretty much anything that swims or lives in the ocean uh, can end up as bycatch. And, uh, uh, you know, you'll hear the you'll hear the phrase in the management process that every fishery has bycatch. And that's that's true to some extent. But. Where we focus our efforts are in the the large volume fisheries 
in Alaska that um, the bycatch amounts, while maybe small in proportion to what they're targeting, uh, still add up to millions of pounds, millions of individual animals and fish. And that's what we're trying to to reduce and, and mitigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you're saning. Or yeah. You're... So bycatch. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. There was a little delay there for a second there. But oh, uh, like sure. saners and trollers, they're going to pick up a steelhead here or there. I got a buddy who's, who's fishes halibut and you got your long line. And so he'll be pulling up some spiny dogfish instead of halibut. Um, so that would be bycatch. But as you said, the scale of these larger industrial operations, the amount of bycatch is staggering. Yes, it's quite it's it can be quite, uh, quite large. And um, well, maybe let me let me back up a bit. And I'm not sure if people fully comprehend like the scale of, of fisheries in Alaska. So Alaska is, as we all know, a major um, commercial fisheries uh, state. In fact, it's one of our largest private employers, the the fishing industry. Um, and if you if you considered Alaska its own country, we'd be around tenth or the tenth or eleventh biggest fishing nation in the world in terms of how much fish is caught and produced uh, in Alaska. So um, it's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish, and it's a lot of poundage. Um, and it's a, it's a big industry, um, but it, it's a fairly new industry. You know, the uh, industrial type fishing in Alaska really only started in the uh, 50s and 60s. So prior to that, you know, we had our traditional, uh, I'd call them Alaska community fisheries, you know, your, your salmon, your halibut, um, cod, crab fishing. And there were these fish stocks a little further offshore or fish that um, weren't targeted. Uh, and they, they call them ground fish. And they're just ground fish is just kind of a catch all term for pretty much anything that's not a halibut or a salmon, I guess is one way to put it. And most of those fish species are managed by uh, the federal government, the National Marine Fisheries Service. And those fisheries occur outside of state waters. Uh, further to, further than three nautical miles from shore. Um, but backing up, so prior to around the 60s, none of these types of fisheries existed. And uh, what happened was uh, foreign um, uh, foreign factory boats came over from Russia and Japan um, and were, were fishing, trawling in, in waters off the Gulf of Alaska and off the Bering Sea and and developed these uh these massive fisheries for pollock uh cod um even black cod sable fish uh pacific ocean perch which is a rock fish and um some of the flatfish and so that type of fishing wasn't even really heard of prior to 1960 so they've only been at it around 50 or 60 years well let's see here 60 to 70 years here in Alaska, which is it's a fairly short time frame compared to the uh, millennia that um, people in coastal communities have have extracted fish from the ocean to eat. And so we're really just starting to catch up to what some of those impacts are. And when you start digging into the details, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty staggering. And um, what... 
there's been improvements along the way here in the way the fishers are managed and the way bycatch is managed. Um, but what a lot of, uh, what a lot of folks have been in the industry a long time, uh, they've seen improvements along the way. So a lot of the, a lot of the discussion is about, well, it used to be worse mm-hmm. and it's better now. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's still not good and it's still not perfect and it's still not the best way to manage some of these offshore um, or some of these fisheries resources. Mm-hmm. And so these, uh, uh, the current industrial fisheries, and we're talking about trawling, not trolling, mm-hmm. not, not, not dragging uh, or not trolling a, a line in the water with your boat, but this is trawling, which is dragging a, um, a large net and it's, I, you know, I use the term net kind of loosely. It's, it's a gear, it's a gear type and there's lots of components to the gear. There's a, uh, a foot rope, which can be a chain or, uh, uh, you know, some, some kind of wire with rubber discs on it that can bounce along the bottom and then, uh, um, steel doors that kind of hold the net open and then, a, a big long um, net itself and it, it basically uh the idea that the doors and something called the sweeps which are wires they kind of herd the fish towards you know you could think of a funnel dragging a giant funnel through the water hurting the sieving the ocean and herding these fish towards uh the net and eventually they get packed into the what they call the cod end of the net and this is the kind of fishing where you can catch 10 tons of fish at a time I mean, it's, it's massive. 10 tons of fish is a lot of fish. Yeah. So, you're, you're saying boat, your trawler, stuff like that. You, you've got to find your, your area and you set your net and the, the fish may, maybe they're there, maybe they're not. And, uh, you know, some of my buddies who've worked on commercial fishing boats talk about getting, getting water hauls. And so, you know, the very few fishes they're bringing the net back over with this trawler, it's an indiscriminate bottom fish just scooping up massive amounts of fish and you're getting so much on every and i think in your presentation you did the alaska outdoor council talked about just acres of worth of 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 ocean bottom being um just almost picked clean after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers if we've learned anything it's that there's always a catch So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Right. So, um, yeah, these nets, they can be as wide as a football field, so like 300 feet wide, and they can be dragged for uh, five to 10 miles. And so if you, you know, you do the calculations, uh, one, one haul, one drag of a, of, of a net can cover, um, a couple hundred acres that way, a big, long strip. And you can imagine, and th- this occurs tens of thousands of times, you know, offshore in Alaska waters. And as these trawl tracks crisscross each other, um, sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they're limited to kind of core fishing areas where the industry knows where the fish are. Um, and sometimes they move around a little bit to avoid bycatch, but, but what you have is, um, uh, you know, areas of the seafloor in Alaska, which, which are in a constant state of disturbance, basically. Um, and the fishery service goes through some motions to estimate what some of those impacts are because they are required to actually, because it is against the law to destroy fish habitat. Um, but the the fishery service takes a bit of a myopic view here in that uh, um, they really look at how well the fish stocks are doing and they try to draw conclusions as to how healthy the habitat is through that uh, process. While they do estimate like how much, um, how long it might take certain habitat features to recover, even the, even the fishery service services estimates uh, say that uh, something like, oh, let me, let me recall here. In the Gulf of Alaska, 20 or 30,000 square kilometers are in some sort of state of trawl disturbed um, habitat, mm-hmm. which, which in my mind are, is um, it's, it impacts other users, other stakeholders of the ocean resource. You know, this, Trawling is one of the only fishing techniques that leaves the ocean, leaves the habitat in poorer condition than when they started. Mm-hmm. And there's there's little mitigation, little 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 recourse um, for the industry for causing that effect. Uh, you know, we have we have some closed areas in Alaska that are protected from trawling, so there has been some some efforts to to um, move trawlers out of areas where the habitat is sensitive or um, we've demonstrated there's deep sea corals there that could be at risk from, from trawls. There's been some actions to prevent expansion of trawling into the north, um, but still a lot of the Bering Sea Shelf and most of the Gulf of Alaska Shelf is open to trawling. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with that is that you have these areas that are kind of the nursery for halibut and so if you end up picking up massive amounts of the in this in this nursery habitat for halibut you might have be having a pretty profound impact on the on the stock going forward yeah um you know one of one of the great ironies is uh in the southern part of the bering sea is an area that going back even to the 1920s uh, early halibut fishery managers recognized that it was an important area for uh, juvenile halibut. It was a halibut nursery. Um, but since the rise of uh, trawling um, 
in the modern age, it's become an area known as Cod Alley, which is one of the most heavily trawled areas in Alaska. Oh, man. And uh, this this halibut area is actually closed to directed halibut fishing. So commercial halibut fishermen can't set their lines in there for halibut. Um, but the trawl industry can take 4,000 tons of halibut out of that area. It's it's uh, it's uh, ironic is yeah. one word. <laughs> and there's other words too. Yeah. Um, so have you read uh, Mark Kurlansky's cod about the cod fishery on the East, uh, East coast and just the devastation that, uh, has become, as we become much better at and more efficient at, uh, catching fish, it, uh, depleted the stocks and the cod fishery on the East coast is you know, obviously it's not even less, it's less than a shell of what it used to be. Um, do you see going forward? Is that, like a worst worst case scenario do you think that we have a chance because obviously trawling isn't the only only problem there's some other uh, um, issues uh, that have to go along with other pieces to the puzzle but uh, do you see uh, that as a possibility happening over here with the efficiency of the trawling and other factors yeah um yeah that's a that's a classic fisheries book that caught everyone's everyone seems to have read it it's a good a good read um well pacific cod the the fishery for Pacific cod specifically, you know, that kind of developed after after the Atlantic cod fishery. So when they found uh, cod stocks up here in Alaska, you know, that was one of the first um, first fish to have fishing companies develop uh, to target. And they used to have these cod fish camps along the Alaska Peninsula and in and the Aleutian Islands and um, parts of the Gulf. And, uh, you know, they would go out and target cod in, in small boats and uh, jig, jig for them. And it was a pretty small fishery, but it was still, you know, pretty substantial. They'd salt the cod and send it back uh, to San Francisco. Um, but that was kind of one of the first entries into the commercial type fishing in Alaska for these offshore ground fish. Um, now for cod, and cod is one of these fish that you can catch with... Um, a whole bunch of gear types, you know, you can catch them in pots, you can catch them with hook and lines and jigs, long line. Um, but we have a massive trawl fishery for cod here in Alaska. So about half the cod is caught through trawling, um, which again is, is one of these things where there is cleaner, less damaging gear types that exist for targeting cod. Uh, but they can't catch them in the same volumes at one boat with a trawl can. Um, yet we're still managing the, the cod fishery to make allowance for uh, opportunities for trawling for them. And uh, I can go on, I can go on and on about cod <laughs> trawling because it does, it does, um, it does present, you know, kind of a problem that you, you have this fish can be caught with, with lots of different gear types with less damage, but the fishery managers, that's the fishery service and the North Pacific Fishery Management Council, um, you know, they, they carve out opportunities for the for the trawlers to target cod. And it only works to, to trawl for cod when they're aggregated up uh, just before they spawn. Hmm. So, in fact, the, the fishery service actually opens the cod season to the trawlers first for them to uh, drag through these pre-spawning cod schools and kind of get their first, uh, you know, first, first, uh, first cut at the cod. Um, now that's that 
that's kind of a growing concern of mine is that, um, and there's some science around um, what the effect of disturbing a school of fish is uh, with that kind of behavior. And so fish, of course, you know, schooling, fish school, that's part of their behavior, part of their, um, part of their life history, part of the way they avoid predators. You know, you get in a school, um, part of the way they, for lack of a better word, socialize, mate, and, you know, interact and, 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 and be fish, right. And, uh, spawn and all that. Um, and so disturbing and targeting the fish when just before they're trying to do that, uh, it does have some effects. They've done some studies in Iceland on what happens to a cod school after you drag a net through it. And it kind of, of course, as you would expect, scatters the school, um, and the school may or may not reform and it might have some, uh, impacts on their their spawning success. Now, this is something that the Fisher Service kind of ignores, doesn't worry about, because um, our cod populations, at least in the Bering Sea, have been fairly large recently. Even though uh, we had this big warm blob event in the Gulf of Alaska a few years ago, which completely decimated the Gulf of Alaska cod population. But uh, nonetheless, you know, all these all these all these types of impacts that we're just starting to understand, you know, they cumulative cumulatively add up mm-hmm. and it's, it's the large trawl uh, portion of the industry that has the largest cumulative effect on all these things. Mm-hmm. So we touched on halibut, touched on cod. And what about the, the Chinook now? Uh, people, when they think of, you know, dragging the bottom to think of some of the bottom fish, the flat fish, but, uh, what's the impact on, uh, on Chinook? And I got some numbers here that are just, they're just terrifying to, to think about like how, how the Chinook can, cause we are not really sure what's happened to them anyway. We're, you know, we're, we're looking, uh, in the spawning grounds, what we can do to make sure that they can get up there and they, and they can spawn. But if there's also dangers that are out in the ocean when they're doing their thing out there, um, that does not bode well. So what do you have uh, as far as, uh, Chinook bycatch? Yeah, Chinook are, are in a very sorry state up and down the coast here. You know, Chinook have been on a, a 50-year decline, it seems. Um, coincidentally or not, uh, you know, that's over the course of the rise of industrial fisheries in Alaska. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Chinook, as our longest-lived uh, salmon species, have to, you know, have to be out at sea for four or five years, you know, two years in, in uh, freshwater, four or five, five or six years in the ocean. That's how you get your big Kenai um, Chinook returning. So they have to avoid, you know, predation, uh, get enough to eat, uh, avoid disease, injury, all that stuff for, for many years in the ocean before they return back to sea. So, you know, trawling and bycatch, you know, is just another source of mortality in the, in the open ocean in their juvenile and adult stage or sub-adult stage, um, that is one thing that we can actually do something about. You know, that's direct fisheries mortality caused by by people. And that's that's the one place where we can actually reduce mortality. We can't do much about um, whether they're getting enough to eat or, or predation and things like that, but we can reduce uh, the impact of, of, of removing them as bycatch. And the the fishery service and the fishery council and fishing game, I mean, they're working hard and the industry are all working hard to avoid uh, salmon bycatch. Now, there's been a number of regulations put in place to um, 
first of all, limit the number of salmon that could be caught in many of these fisheries. So there is a hard cap limit for Chinook salmon bycatch in the Bering Sea um, and in the Gulf of Alaska ground fish fisheries. And that's measured in the tens of thousands of fish, which which always sounds like a lot when you're not getting allowed to fish uh, yeah. in our salmon fisheries close to home. Um, but it is a small number compared to the millions of pounds of pollock and other species that the trawlers are targeting. And so it's a it's it becomes a very um, hard issue for the managers to to manage when these fishers are managed by the Department of Commerce, whose job is to turn fish into money, basically. Right. And uh, um, however, the same people have have some responsibility to ensure there's enough fish getting back to streams in Alaska. And so that, that's, um, you know, those trade offs are are starting to be a little better balanced. I don't they were they were they were didn't used to be balanced at all, uh, but they are starting to to balance those a little better. Um, they're starting to make bycatch reductions, but they still have a long way to go. Mm. You know, we'd like to see, uh, of course, many people would like to see no bycatch of salmon, especially when when Chinook are in such uh, dire straits and every fish counts. Um, but it does come down to what, you know, what what the government and uh, what the government thinks is practicable in many ways. And, um, you know, they're always concerned about being sued from either side. So mm-hmm. they do have to balance things. Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting somewhere, but it's, 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 it is a little late, you know, we're, 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 we're doing triage at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, some, like rough estimates i i was looking up uh some numbers about bycatch and you talked about the bycatch cap in 2010 i think this was in the bering sea the bycatch cap was 60,000 and that's pounds not fish right or is that fish not pounds no that's that's fish that's okay. individual fish. um and there was an incentive cap is that uh, if they keep it below this there is that's good or what's the incentive cap yeah so uh, um in the Bering Sea, the uh, the Pollock industry, who was um, who's constrained by that cap, they came up with uh, some level of individual vessel accountability for how much fish, how much salmon they were catching. So um, they have, and I might not, I might get this wrong. It's it's somewhat comp- but they have an internal system within the industry of of fines. I guess is one way to put it. Um, that you know if you're the worst performing boat in the cooperative or in the fleet you get some fine and it's in the tens of thousands of dollars might be more i can't remember exactly but they they have some it's sort of a competition i guess between boats between companies to minimize their bycatch and uh you know these are boats that carry observers so and they are supposed to retain every salmon so they're counted because they are dead most of the time the salmon you know don't survive being drug through the water for five miles um and then uh um you know the observer counts counts the fish and the fishery service estimates how much they are and they do pay for their own program kind of a real-time monitoring um uh reporting system where uh someone back in head office is getting catch rates from all you know catch rate reports from all the vessels where the where they're when they're at sea and may 
recommend you know mo- moving vessels out of areas or into other areas where the bycatch is lower. So they, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're they are working at it. The industry is aware of the problem, and they do recognize the bad press and the and the um, and the uh, the feelings around bycatch in Alaska. And you know, I have to believe they're they're trying to do what they can, but there is. There is an inherent problem with with trawling. I mean, it's it's yeah. dragging and sieving huge nets to the water, and Chinook salmon is just one of many many species that does end up in those nets that, um, you know, would otherwise be returning to kelp beds to spawn in case of herring or um, everything from whales and sea lions to uh, seabirds. I mean. Percentage wise, when you weigh all the bycatch that the pollock fishery catches against the amount of pollock that they catch, it does appear fairly low mm-hmm. um, percentage wise. But that's just a reflection of how big the pollock fishery itself is. Yeah. What's the percentage of bycatch to the like recreational slash subsistence uh, percentage? Is it. Uh... I hope it's not like equal, but like the the Gosh. accidental death versus the uh, the use death. How does that uh, right. compare? Um, you know, I don't know, but at one point, um, uh, you know, I, I was I was just the commercial um, Chinook salmon harvest in Alaska has been oh between two hundred thousand to um, uh, maybe three hundred thousand fish in recent years um and bycatch caps in the Bering Sea say 40,000 and in the in the Gulf 25,000 so that's and they've and they've been under that cap ever since they've those caps have been put in place so um it's not like they're equal but they are um you know they're not de minimis they're not nothing yeah, and they're certainly uh, you know they do genetic testing now on on the fish that come as that are the the salmon that are captured as bycatch to determine what streams they would have been heading to, and they also use that uh, um, an index of of abundance at at sea to um, kind of float the cap. Sometimes it can go down. Um, well, sixty thousand is the limit, but can it can also go down if the Chinook abundance at sea is below a certain threshold. Hmm. It's it's pretty surprising, you know, since I've been working on this, um, how little we knew about uh, salmon behavior and abundance when they're in the ocean. Hmm. It was, uh, we had no good estimates of how much salmon could be in the ocean at any one time. You know, nobody was really studying that. Fish and game studies it only when they, the fish are back towards shore and they're opening and closing fisheries. Um, and there wasn't really anyone taking responsibility for that kind of kind of management. But now, now I think they're cluing in and doing a little more. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not equal, but it is definitely a, a chunk that could be a lot of fish that could be used elsewhere. Um, sure. Now, obviously, it's a very complex thing. The last thing any of us who are kind of I don't want to say anti troll, but maybe anti troll, we don't want the people who are fishing for a career. We don't want them to just go hungry or, you know, like I don't want you to have a job because I don't think trawling is good. Um, But what is the kind of way out for this? Is there a way that we can, um, 
maybe still have trawlers but reduce the the limits even more is it is the only way we're out of this is if we do ban trawling and hope the people who have jobs on trawlers find other jobs or what's uh, what's a productive way out of this right well it's um you know it's definitely a complicated issue but i think there's there's a couple ways to tackle this um you know one is is we need to we need to change the narrative somewhat that um you go to these meetings and the industry talks about the trawl grounds or the fishing grounds. Um, but you know what those are? They're fish habitat. Those are, those are some of the most important fish habitats in the Bering Sea in Alaska and the North Pacific. You know, they're not um, a single stakeholder. Um, you know, there isn't just the trawl industry that's a stakeholder in, in utilizing those areas. You know, anyone who, who catches salmon or halibut or any other fish that, grows to maturity, feeds, lives in that important habitat is a stakeholder. So we have to change the narrative that, no, it's not the the trawl grounds. It's not Cod Alley. This is essential fish habitat for this whole suite of species. Um, and then uh, one, of, one of the things that we'd like to see is, um, is limiting the footprint of trawling. You know, we know where uh, trawling has occurred in the past and currently, you know, there are some areas that are are heavily trawled by the industry. And then there's some areas where, for whatever reason, um, they may want to top up on a certain species, or they may be looking for fish, kind of scratch fishing. And that's how you kind of spread out the impact of trawling over a larger area without catching, you know, as much fish, it's less can be less efficient. So we'd like to kind of limit the footprint of that um, trawl impact and then, and set, uh, and set bycatch caps, set limits for everything. I think there should be a limit for everything, whether it's a starfish, uh, corals and sponges, uh, or even maybe the amount of times you can drag a, a net along the seafloor. You know, we need some sort of some cap or limit or threshold that, uh, um, the industry can work within and under and, and continually improve their performance. So in, in the Gulf of Alaska, uh, um, trawling is still kind of a, a grow, you know, it's still kind of a low, uh, it's not as abundant or trawling isn't as huge as it is in the Bering Sea. And I think in, especially in the Gulf, we still have an opportunity to kind of get our hands around it and manage it better. So the Gulf, by freezing the footprint or limiting the footprint of trawling, we could actually uh, put a lot of habitat off limits for now from trawling and then focus on bycatch reductions into the hot spots that, that it's occurring. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes we operate in a black box. We don't know exactly what's going on out there if, if some of these fisheries aren't observed. Um, and so that's one way to, you know, kind of contain, contain the impact to places that may have already been um, disturbed by trawling, but continue to, for whatever reason, attract the fish that they're targeting and then, you know, try to minimize bycatch occurring in those areas. Mm. Um, people, uh, people want to get involved or be more educated, where, where are some resources that they can do? How can they uh, get involved or, or any of that stuff? Sure thing. Well, we have a website at Oceana um, on the Gulf of Alaska. We have a nice report around the uh, costs of trawling in the Gulf, which details the amount of bycatch and the amount of habitat impacts that occur from the trawl industry. Um, you can find that at uh, oceana.org somewhere, Gulf of Alaska, easy, easy to uh, Google. Um, you can go to these meetings 
they are draining and they take a long time and it's a lot of reading and uh boy the um if you don't do your homework they really jump on you but um you know getting involved in in uh the stakeholder fishery management process uh um can be uh can either be therapeutic or more frustrating because um there is a lot of inaction sometimes um but uh you know the the managers they do need to hear the concerns from from people especially fishermen who are concerned about this i mean because it's it's taking fish away from their fisheries and it's taking even worse um uh the habitat aspect you know degrading the quality of the habitat i think is probably one of the biggest travesties of, of trawling because there is while the direct bycatch is a problem um you know the numbers that we hear about are are, are relatively um uncertain I think we have some idea, but they're not, you know, completely accurate. Uh, and there's a lot of fish that tumble through the nets, you know, maybe go through the mesh and we don't know what happens to those. We do know that orcas pick off the bycatch as they're thro it's thrown over the side. I know that's a problem with, um, with the uh, halibut bycatch. Um, I mean, there's this ridiculous regulation that, uh, um, halibut caught on a trawl boat they have half an hour to throw the halibut back into the ocean before they're counted against their bycatch limit that's a that's an interesting one. Oh wow yeah yeah <laughs> huh. so you know you could imagine a halibut that's been dragged through the ocean for five miles in the bottom of a cod end and is uh but then is sorted out on deck and thrown back in the water um and then the orcas are sitting there waiting to to pick it off yeah they're smart yeah uh closing thoughts what do you got gee um well you know we we are lucky in alaska that um we still have for the most part um relatively healthy fish populations um however some of our favorite fish halibut chinook salmon um king crab those are the ones that are in trouble, you know, and those are the ones we need to protect habitat. We need to, uh, um, you know, identify those nursery areas. We need to stay the heck off of trawling on top of any habitat that, that is, that they rely on. And, and we need to reduce the numbers of, 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 um, fish that are caught as, as bycatch by these fisheries. Cool. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate uh, really appreciate your time. It's nice to talk to uh, someone who's obviously uh, done a lot of uh, research. Uh, appreciate your time, and um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, we can do something about this. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, it's a process. Yeah. Cool. Thanks again. Appreciate it. All right, Jeff. Nice to meet you. Thanks. You too.